Hello everyone, it's great to welcome you with Talk with TT. We are um, on episode six of our conversations. This is uh, conversations with individuals, uh, uh, members of Colchester Baptist Church in Essex in the United Kingdom. And I'm really delighted to have uh, Benson Equesson uh, with us. Well, Benson, welcome. It's really good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Now, Benson uh, was born in Nigeria, and uh, he's had uh, an extraordinary journey, um, I can say, because I know him uh, both personally and professionally. Um, and uh, just sort of some background, um, uh, Benson was educated in a Catholic primary school and a, a Methodist secondary school. and. Um, um, and we're going to talk a bit about some of that background, Benson. But um, yeah. first, I want to talk to you um, about what we're going through in terms of the coronavirus and the lockdown. Um, how has it been for you? Well, I suppose the coronavirus has actually um, brought the world to his, to his knees, it's made us realize mm. the vulnerability and the fragility of humankind. Mm. How superpowers, the good and the great, have been brought down to their knees. Yes. Yes. And there is also a lot of uncertainty about the future. Mm. So in terms of the lockdown itself, personally, it's had tremendous impact mm. on my personal and professional life. The main impact is around my pre-existing daily formalities and established structures and routines that have been destabilized as the lockdown carries on. It's like the days of the week have become merged into yes. one big bundle. And sometimes I'm having to look at the calendar to figure out the days of the week and what time it is. This is arising from relatively very little to do. My activity level has dropped significantly and I'm having to work out new and effective and adaptive strategies to help me better manage these changes. Yes, yes. There is also the tendency to stay longer in bed and to eat more. <laughs> <laughs> However, I'm constantly reminding myself of my regular exercise regime, such as going for a long walk. <laughs> Good. On the professional side, my face-to-face -face clinical work with my clients is now non-existent. My work with a fewer clients is now being done remotely through the use of technology where appropriate. On the positive side, this is also giving me more time with my family. Yeah. <laughs> and to appreciate everyone better. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Nonetheless, I take comfort in the fact that God knows best. He is in control and he continues to uphold me and my family 
and I'm looking forward to normal life again, whatever that normal life will look like or feel <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah. Excellent, excellent. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, now, actually, just uh, tell us about your family. Um, we are going to talk about where you met, but just who, who belongs to your family, Benson? Um, you mean in terms of um, your wife, I, your children, your yeah, so, your immediate household? Yes, um, it's myself, my wife Yemi, and my two exceptionally loving, um, <laughs> you know, children, Liz and um, Tunde. Yeah, they've paid you to say that. <laughs> no, they haven't. He is a very charming man, is our Benson. Um, now, um, in your family lineage in Nigeria is something that many of us don't know in Colchester Baptist Church. Yeah. Um, I can say this, you can't, but you're a very humble man. Um, Thank you. And um, but tell me, your father was to be a king of his tribe. Yes, yes. Um, if I just put some perspective to this, yeah, yeah. I come from a royal lineage. My family um, hail from a tribe known as Elaje, a riverine part of Ondo State in the southwest of Nigeria. My father was to be the king of our tribe, but this would have meant him taking and partaking and indeed leading in a lot of traditional rituals and practices that are generally considered incompatible or irreconcilable with Christian ethos and calling. So my father chose a different path, and that was to serve God. Mm. So my uncle became the king instead, and my father became the spiritual head of a sect of an indigenous Christian denomination in Nigeria called the Cherubim and Seraphim denomination. Mm. He was also designated as a senior apostle, priest, and prophet. The church was only a, a stone throw from our house then. There would be three to four weekly evening services, and then the main devotional service would be on Sundays. So we would spend much time of the evenings, of the evening hours in the church. Mm. There was a lot of singing and dancing, a lot of preaching and Bible reading during the sermons. So my early life experience was tremendously influenced by this platform, mm. you know, and um, to that I remain very grateful yeah. um, because that was actually the foundation of my inclination to the Christian way of life. Fantastic. So should I call you Prince Benson? <laughs> <laughs> no, I will just, you know, leave it as Benson. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic, amazing. So um, my, one of my younger um, stepbrothers 
is the current king of my tribe in Nigeria. If I was still in Nigeria, the crown would in all probabilities have fallen on my head. Wow. <laughs> However, I would have opted for the path of Christian life just like my father. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. That's really interesting. Now, going back to primary school and secondary school, what was that like for you? Tell us a bit about it. Well, primary school and secondary school, very interesting. I had my primary and secondary school education in Lagos. I went to a Catholic primary and Methodist secondary school. It was at secondary school that I formally declared my life for Christ. Mm. Mm. Although the indications were there right from, right from um, my formative years of my leaning towards Christ, even before my formal commitment. Mm. At secondary school, I was very fortunate to have a very devoted and committed Christian as a school principal. A gentleman by the name Mr. White, who happened to be an Englishman and a Methodist missionary. Terrific. He introduced scripture union to the school and it had very positive influence on those of us who gave our lives to Christ during his tenure. Mm -hmm. So I was um, a school prefect when I was in um, secondary school. In um, primary school, I was um, also a senior, a senior boy. In my class, I was um, the more or less the head boy, as it were, in primary right. school. Wow. Then um, one of the, I think, a number of prefects we had um, when I was in secondary school, I was, um, I was one of them. Mm. So both second, primary and secondary school were very exciting, very interesting indeed, mm. and very, very fulfilling um, mm. for me. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you mentioned earlier that you're from the state of Ondu uh, in southwest Nigeria. Um, what were your tribe known for? What was the cultural norms and way of life? The people of Ondo state in southwest Nigeria are reputed for being highly educated and intelligent. <laughs> It used, it used to be it's said true. that. <laughs> We're going to find out about that in a minute. <laughs> it, used, it used to be said that almost every family lineage from Ondo State had at least one professor. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> so, in fact, one of my um, maternal uncles was a professor mm -hmm. in Nigeria. And if I'd carried on in academia in Nigeria, I definitely would have become a professor <laughs> by now. <laughs> so in Ondo State, the, the main industries, um, apart from education, you know, um, are farming and um, fishing. Farming and fishermen, yeah. Yeah, so coming from the River Rhine side of Ondo State, um, my people, in that part of the state were very much, and are still very much involved in fishing. Yeah. You know, um, and I think that's where I got my taste of um, 
you know, because I'm not so full of, um, <laughs> you know, fish and stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Good yeah. taste. Yeah. Now, which university did you go to after A-levels? Well, after my A-levels, I went to the University of Ibadan. University of Ibadan um, happens to be Nigeria's um, premier university. And um, it's situated in southwest Nigeria, and it's about 70 miles from Lagos. Mm -hmm. There, I studied undergraduate psychology and went on to train um, MSc clinical psychology, mm. qualifying me um, to work <clears throat> and practice as a clinical psychologist. However, before undertaking my postgraduate training in clinical psychology, I served a mandatory one-year national service, national youth service. This is a compulsory national service for fresh graduates. Right. Yeah. You know, so whether you studied in Nigeria or you studied abroad, mm. if you're looking to work in Nigeria, the first prerequisite would be, apart from your qualifications, would be your certificate of the national service. Right. So right. You, you couldn't work in Nigeria mm -hmm. without, if, you know, without producing one. I'm yeah. talking about Nigerians now, not, um, you know, experts. Yeah. So, um, so before undertaking my postgraduate training in clinical psychology, I served a mandatory one-year national service. And um, it's not a military service, mm -hmm. I must um, put that right. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's, it's a kind of service that is designed as a program for fresh graduates to give something back to their mm -hmm. motherland. Mm -hmm. So one could be placed in any sector, any industry, you know, um, yeah. education, business, uh, trade, you know, to work in. Yeah. It's just, you know, to use the skills, the knowledge, the academic knowledge. And it's also a way of instilling discipline yeah. in people and creating a sense of national identity, yeah. you know, in individuals. So where did you do your service? So I, I did my youth service at the Department of Psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And this was um, at the College of Medicine and um, University College Hospital in, in Ibadan, Nigeria. And after completing um, my national service, I was absorbed into the department and my role was regularized. Terrific. So, yeah. And it was there that uh, my professional life took off. So upon completing my clinical psychology training, I was appointed a clinical psychologist and research fellow. And um, it was during my tenure that I was involved in a lot of research programs yeah. at the local and international levels. And this included um, an international multi-center mental health research that was sponsored by the WHO, the World Health Organization. Yeah. And, and another research on family planning in Nigeria, mm. where I was the main investigator 
and that research was sponsored by John Hopkins University, USA. So okay. the WHO project brought me to England for the first time when we had um, our multi-center training at um, Whittington Hospital yes. in Manchester. This was in 1990. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's just, we'll hold that thought. Let's go to, now where did you meet your lovely wife, Yemi? How did that all begin? <laughs> um, I met Yemi, my wife, um, at the indigenous church that um, we both were attending um, in Nigeria. This indigenous church was close to the um, university I attended and um, also close to the hospital mm. that I was working with in. Yemi's father was a patron of the church. Yes. And, um, our mother was one of the high-ranking female members of the church. Um, the church was a very spiritual church. You know, again, just like my, the, the church of my childhood, you know, a lot of singing, dancing, a lot of preaching and Bible reading. So, um, so we got married um, in January 1991 mm. and I'm blessed with two exceptionally lovely children, um, Lisa and Tunde, who are now in their 20s. Yeah. And Yemi was working as a PA um, at the time. Mm. That's great. And we have the privilege of knowing your lovely family at church. And <laughs> Thank you. So you, you, uh, you, John Hopkins University, people will be very aware of that name in, during the coronavirus because they're one of the lead research universities, mapping and, um, yeah. and we've also the World Health Organization. So yeah. you're walking in very um, lofty and esteemed quarters. Um, <laughs> And that probably leads us on to your second journey back to England because you did this research. And then tell us, um, in, in, in our language, you, you were headhunted. <laughs> 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 so um, when was that? In 1992, was that right? Yes, yes. In 1992, I was awarded um, a fellowship of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Yes to study at the National Addiction Center at the Institute of Psychiatry, University of London. Mm. That was my second coming to England. There, I did a postgraduate diploma in addiction behavior. So this was about understanding, um, assessing, treating, and researching um, alcohol and um, drug misuse. Mm. Mm. So um, I was there until late um, 1993 mm -hmm. and um, went back home to apply and put to use all that I've had, I have been trained in. Um, this was um, at the Department of Psychiatry yes. at the yes. University of Ibadan. Yes. Um, 
1995, I was back in England for the third time. Um, this time to take up a dual clinical post in substance misuse disorder and mental health. Mm -hmm. I was working in East London at the Mile End Hospital and um, a community substance misuse service. So I was there until um, <clears throat> late 1996. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, then early 1997, I left with my family for Colchester. having been appointed as um, a clinical psychologist in the NHS. Yes. And I was working, I was first working with the um, community mental health teams as well as the inpatient psychiatric units yes right then subsequently my role had had an additional role working in substance misuse um services um based in colchester and then moved on to also work in um with um severe mental illness, um, mm. inpatient setting, again, mm. here in Colchester. And this was the, um, the old, um, um, what is it called? Asylum. Yes. In Colchester. It's now been turned into a housing estate, but you still have remnants of um, that hospital yeah. around the grounds. Mm. So, um, so I was employed as a clinical psychologist with the then um, North East Essex Mental Health Partnership Trust. Yeah. And um, from there, I rose to the position of a consultant clinical psychologist. Um, in nineteen, sorry, in twenty o four. Yeah. And that same year was when I obtained my doctorate wow. in clinical psychology <laughs> and that was so, from the but, university of essex wasn't it yeah that was from the university of essex yeah um, also as part of my clinical work was um working as a clinical neuropsychologist because with mental illness with substance misuse yeah the brain is something that takes the brunt in these mm. cases. Mm. Yeah. So assessing the functioning of the brain in relation to human behavior mm. was also part of um, my role yeah. at the time. Yeah. So it's true, people from the state of Ondu are very clever people. <laughs> <laughs> um, but seriously though, um, so the difference between your work as a clinical psychologist where you're uh, bringing interventions where people are, you know, uh, involved in alcohol misuse and so what would that look like? Just generally, what would that look like in your work or your team's work? Yeah. It, um, it wasn't uncommon to find that um, people who 
or some people who were suffering with mental health issues also had comorbid substance misuse problem. Yeah. Especially people who, you know, were suffering with severe mental illness, mm. hearing voices <clears throat> um, or visual hallucination mm. or thought disorder. One way or the other, in addition to their medication, prescribed medication, they might also want to medicate mm. the symptoms by, mm. you know, subscribing to um, drugs and alcohol. Yes. So it could also be the other way around that people with substance misuse problems, alcohol use disorder or um, drug use disorder, would also have their mental health compromised, mm. you know, and then they develop, they might develop things like depression or severe anxiety, panic disorder, um, which then will bring them, you know, to my attention mm. for assessment and for therapeutic intervention. Yes, yes. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Um, actually, if I can ask you this, um, uh, you know, you're a person who's committed his life to Christ, to the Christian way. And, you know, we live in a Western society that has, in part, rejected God, sees that uh, some people who are atheists or agnostics might say that, oh, you have to almost abandon your thinking and your brain. But a lot of scientists and, um, you know, uh, psychologists like yourself are very, you know, you're very sensible people. You've got a PhD. You've got this track record. You were a consultant clinical psychologist with a hospital. Um, what would you say to someone like that who, you know, you're not, a fool. Um, you're a very thoughtful individual professional. How would you respond to someone who challenged you? Well, <clears throat> I, I think from my perspective, the best response will be myself. Mm. I am the evidence of what God has done in my life. Mm -hmm. I am the evidence of how life could have a more productive and fulfilling meaning. Mm. I am the evidence of the power of Christ mm. and how divine transformation mm. can change the whole persona mm. of a human being. Mm. People are searching for meaning in life. Yes. People are searching for peace in life. People are confused. There's a lot of fragility and uncertainty in the world we live in. Mm. Having worked in this field for this many years, I can appreciate that a lot of people are insecure. Mm. Okay. And this is one of the hallmarks of the world we live in now. Yeah. Okay. So, when people see me, the way I come across in my work, the dedication I give to my work, mm. 
the way I go about my work, they see mm. a different individual. Mm. And sometimes some of my clients would ask me, how, how do you do this? Mm. You always look calm. You always look so composed. Mm. The way you go about your work is yeah. so reasoned, you know. And I try to make them realize that there's a greater power mm. that works with me. Yes. I couldn't have done it on my own. Yes. And this yes. greater power is through the sheer grace of God. So my work gives me the platform where mm. appropriate to be able to share my faith. Yes. But obviously, given that we are in a more or less secular environment, yes. one has to be very careful mm. that one's faith is not seen to be beclouding mm. one's own professional intervention in right. clinical work. Absolutely. But it's only when I have a sense of a, of a client who seems to be beyond the clinical work, who seems to be more interested in how I come across mm. and wants to know a bit more about mm. my background. Yeah. This is where I seek the opportunity. Sure. You know, to talk yeah. about, you know, that I am the evidence of how God can bring peace. Yeah. Yeah. And joy and happiness into yeah. one's life. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you, Benson. You're welcome. So um, you finished your time um, as the uh, consultant clinical psychologist in Colchester and Northeast Essex Mental Health. There was a big decision um, in 2008. And just to bring listeners up to speed, 2008 was when we had the financial crash yeah. uh, across the banks uh, of uh, the UK and Europe, uh, across the world, the US. Um, and you decided to move into private practice at that intriguing time, yeah. which some might say, my goodness, that's a risk, you know, um, a very difficult time. Tell us how you went about making that decision. I think it all started from when I became a consultant clinical psychologist. My role started to change. Mm. I found that I was doing a lot more administrative work than clinical work. Mm. So attending meetings upon meetings. So, and I found that that was kind of compromising to some extent my clinical um, interest. So I decided in my mind then that I, I think the future for me would be in private practice where I would be able to dedicate more time to my clinical interests and be able to work more with my clients. Mm. So I took that decision prayerfully it wasn't a decision that was taken lightly. Mm. 
because we were in the middle of recession at the time. Mm. But all the indications I was getting was that God was saying to me that your future lies in private work because you do a lot more mm. for your patients there. <clears throat> so I took that leap of faith, mm. not knowing where I was going. Yeah. It was like the journey of Abraham. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I knew I had to take that leap, mm. but I wasn't clear mm. about how to go about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to answer that call to take that leap of faith in the first place. And then prayerfully left it to God. Mm. I've taken that, this leap now. You show me the rest of how I go about my professional journey. Yeah. And it was so mysterious the way things started to unfold. It was almost as if it was from one blessing to the other mm. on this journey of my professional life. Mm. The doors were opening. Yeah. The blockades were clearing. Yeah. The visions were becoming clearer mm. Mm. about the way to go. Terrific. And when I, I have not had any recourse to look back since then. And one, in all of this, one thing I continue to thank God for was the way he has continued to use me mm. to bring about transformation, mm. to bring about peace, to bring about serenity into the life of people. Yeah. And even now, or before the lockdown, it wasn't uncommon that some of my clients would say to me, please don't retire now <laughs> because there are still a lot of people out there that you need to help. Yeah. We've never had it this way. So mm. there are people out there, please, you know, maintain your strength, mm. maintain your stamina because there are still people out there yeah. that benefit from your work. Terrific. So this is what I thank God for all the yeah. time. Yeah. You know, and this is what gives me the joy and the, and the satisfaction yeah. in the work I do. And I say to clients, my clients, it's not the money. Of course, we need the money to survive, you know, in a mm. material sense. Mm. You, you know, but yeah. it's the way God is using me. So, and I say, you know, to, to people, my, to Christians like me, that my professional work is my ministry. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's, yeah. I don't God's have to be. To. I don't yeah. have to be a pastor or be a minister. But God has carved out this work mm. to be my profession as yeah. well as my calling. So it's become my divine ministry, Terrific. for which I'm very, very grateful to God. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, if I might lead us in a, another direction now. Um, in recent weeks, we saw on our television screen the very sad and unnecessary death of George Floyd uh, in yeah. America. And um, we've seen aroused uh, very authentic responses as well as some inauthentic responses. 
I just, you know, wanted to ask you as uh, someone who's uh, moved to England and been here a number of years and uh, has made many friends, and I count myself blessed as one of those. What? How do we make sense, Benson, of what's going on? And um, yeah, uh, what's your perspective? Yes. That's a very interesting question. And my response to that is that um, the story and the death of George Floyd is both sad mm. and intriguing at the same time. Sad in that it is a culmination of decades and in these centuries Mm. of dehumanization, subjugation, injustices, and other atrocities perpetrated towards peoples whose skin colors and race were considered not to match the political and cultural definition of whiteness. Mm. It is a story that stems from the most heinous crime mm that man has ever committed against man and God, that is slave trade. Mm. The story of George Floyd is a, a culmination of all the struggles of people of conscience, not only to abolish the slave trade, but to eradicate its legacies. Mm. The story is intriguing in that it has once again revealed the mysterious ways that God works to fulfill his purpose in our lives and our world. Defending the defendless, mm -hmm. giving voice to the voiceless, bringing down the powerful institutions and individuals, and bringing justice to the oppressed and powerless. If we look at George Floyd, George Floyd was once an anonymous individual mm. who, like those before him, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, had a dream mm. to touch the world, but perhaps never anticipated that his death was how that dream would be fulfilled. Mm. God has used an anonymous and relatively unknown individual mm. to bring justice to our world. His death has caused unimaginable and extraordinary reverberations mm. across the whole world. His death has called out every person of conscience. His death has caused social awakening and so searching in a way that had never been seen before. Mm. So our collective and individual conscience is being called out for us to revisit and re-examine the past and make atonement for the sins of our forebears. Mm. We see monuments that were once glorifying the past sins tumbling down and people cheering on. 
we see peoples of different races, colors, and backgrounds coming out, even defi defying the coronavirus, mm. all with one purpose and one voice, denouncing the legacies of slave trade and yeah. the social injustice that has stemmed from it. Mm. This is the death of George Floyd in action. Yeah. So I see the Black Lives Matter as a rallying call to call the attention of every person of conscience to the enduring legacies of slave trade. That there is still a section of our society that continues to experience injustice, discrimination, and dehumanization in the hands of institutions and structures that slave trade has left with us. Mm. That with this awareness, appropriate steps will be taken to reset damaging attitudes and beliefs that have become ingrained in these institutions and structure. This is my perspective mm. to okay. George Floyd, yeah. you know, and yeah. his death. Thank you, Benson. That's very thoughtful. And you're right, as someone um, who has worked against um, ending modern day slavery, um, people may not be aware that there are more people in slavery today than the whole three centuries of the transatlantic slave trade. Today, there are 40 million, and we need to be advocates for those individuals who, across our world, find themselves bonded to another. Time's running short, Benson, so I do yeah. need to move on. Um, you work in a field that is incredibly and important, huge at the moment. Um, uh, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, William and Kate, have raised the whole issue of mental health and how we overcome challenges and support people. What, what's your, you know, you're, you're a professional specialist in this area. Um, how do we help people in a mental health crisis? What are the key issues? Yeah, I think first of all, I just want to applaud um, William and Kate for the tremendous work, the contribution they are making mm. to addressing mental health issues in our society. Mental health issues that used to be a taboo and family secrets through their work have been brought to the fore. It's now okay to talk about mental health. Mm. They've created a platform that makes mental health a less difficult matter to talk about. Mental health, as you've just said, is a matter that's very close to my heart. My perspective on dealing with it is what I'll call the preventative approach. Mm. And this would mean early identification, early assessment, and early intervention. The early identification will start with, within the family unit, educating parents and other family members as to how to spot the telltale signs, mm. but also working with them to make the home 
a secure base for every child mm. because the family unit is the beginning of the formative years of a child. Yeah. It's yeah. where the foundation for their emotional and mental growth mm. mm. stems from. Yeah. And if that foundation is shaken, if that foundation becomes an environment mm. that is toxic and poisonous for the emotional growth and development of that child, that child has no, would not stand mm. a chance. Yeah. Yeah. So early intervention in that sense is very, very crucial. Mm. And this will require education. The education will continue. Education that starts from the family unit will continue into schools mm. and then the workplace mm. and then the wider social environment. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we could, we could talk more on this. <laughs> we, we could carry on like this for the whole day. <laughs> but, uh, right, I'm going to uh, ask you some quiz questions. I'm going to skip a few of them, but um, it's yeah. a quiz which you do not win anything, but we find out a bit about you. Are you a city or country man? Definitely a country man. Good answer. <laughs> um, do you prefer reading or watching television? reading but yeah. with the lockdown i seem to have taken a bit more interest in television <laughs> but i watch essentially um documentaries yes educational yeah. programs yeah yeah um food wise uh, would you prefer lasagna or roast beef dinner unfortunately none of these two <laughs> <laughs> what would you because, you know i Again, as I said um, previously, I tried to, um, well, I, I'm a kind of fishy person. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but anything that um, is spicy or, you know, my body doesn't um, go mm. with it. Mm. So um, I don't take beef. So you know, what's your, sorry, what's your favorite fish? It's salmon. Oh, good man. <laughs> <laughs> I love salmon. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in terms of the Bible translations uh, in English, do you prefer the New International Version or the Message, or is there another one? Well, I was brought, on, brought up <laughs> um, in um, the New King James Version. So I still make a lot of reference to that. Yeah. Even though now um, I'm a bit more inclined to the NIV, yeah, but I still find that I can't do without the new King James version. Good. Now, uh, choice of a hymn in Christ alone, or How Great Thou Art. Well, both both of them are you know fantastic um, hymns, but. Um, if I were to choose, it would be how great thou art. Great. Okay. Yeah. Well done. Well done. Uh, my penultimate question, if I can move on, Benson. Um, yeah. uh, how did you get connected to Colchester Baptist Church? Um, what attracted you particularly to the church? Yeah. Well, 
as I said before, we came to Colchester in 1997, and um, the moment we set, settled in Colchester, we started looking for a church. And so the first church was um, we tried was um, Colchester Baptist Church, obviously being a town, um, town center church. So it was very easy to spot. So I, I think we went there once or twice. We said, okay, let's try a bit, a um, few more churches and just before we make a final decision. Then there was this church in Pretty um, Gate that um, they would hold their services at the, um, one of the schools there. So, but we went, you know, within Philatone there. So we came back to Colchester Baptist Church. It was very, very welcoming. Um, the pastor, the minister, Rob Sutter, a fantastic man, you know, a, a man to whom we still give a lot of appreciation because um, it just, together with the, you know, the leadership and other worshippers, they just made us feel very, very much at home. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. we were one of the early um, black um, congregants um, in the church. So we, people spotted us very, very quickly and very easily. And everyone was trying to do their best, you know, to make us feel at mm. home. I think it was the cordial atmosphere, the sense of being welcome, yeah. the warmth, you know, and the genuine yeah. love that people mm. were expressing towards us that made us feel that, yes, that's where God was calling us to set yeah. up. Yeah, so. Thank you for sharing that. And the final, almost final question, I've got a sneaky one up my sleeve. Um, if you're going to give us a word of encouragement, the call to courage your faith, Benson, what would you say to us during these times? I would say that God has a purpose for everything that is happening in our world. Okay. So the way God works is so mysterious. Mm. and we might not be able to fathom it. So the struggles, the challenges, the difficulties we are currently facing, God would have his hand in all of this. Yeah. Yeah. God uses our adversities as a source of strength for us. Mm. God mm. uses our adversities to challenge us and to bring us closer to him. Mm. It's just require asking the Holy Spirit to hold us together mm. and have that belief and hold on to the faith. Yes. We also need to realize that we are on a journey. Mm. So our journey does not end in this world. So even those who have subscribed mm. and have succumbed, to COVID-19 and have mm. passed away. As Christians, I believe that those who are Christians will mm. continue their, have continued their journey into eternity. Yeah. Okay. So this is just a passage. Mm. We are in a passage. Mm. And so we want to look beyond COVID-19. Yeah. That if it is the will of God, we'll survive it. Yeah. If God has other purpose, 
for us, whether we're young or old, is entirely up to God as to whether mm-hmm. this is a time to call us to himself or yeah. to carry us to ask us to carry on in yeah. this world. Yeah. That is my message. And that Fantastic. what it means therefore is that we do not get anxious. Mm. Okay. Mm. We do not fret. Yeah. We want to hold on to the promise. Yeah. You know, God says to Joshua, do not be afraid. Tell the children of Israel. Yeah. Do not be afraid, be bold and be strong. Mm. Because that land that I'm going to give you, mm. I will take you there for sure. Yeah. So we want oh, to hold wonderful. on to our faith. Yeah. Wonderful. Now my postscript question. Yeah. Um, those of us who know you well and love you, um, there is a corner in the, the uh, church. Um, <laughs> I if I'm reading the service... <laughs> it's the top right corner and we call it amen corner and um tell us a bit about so you give a wonderful rousing amen to the end of prayers don't you yeah. and um tell us about that why do you do that well this actually had been built in me from my you know formative years yeah when the church that my father was head of you know, a man was about the main language, if I may say that. Mm. So the spiritual value of a man, you know, was already kind of inducted into me right from that very early stage of my life. Mm. And when we look at what a man means, it's like giving an affirmation. Yeah. We're asked to pray within season, out of season. Mm. So when we pray and there is no amen, especially in a resounding sense that goes with it, mm. it's like a letter you put in the post and mm. it's not being delivered. Yeah. The postman becomes your, you know, the vehicle that carries that letter to its meant designation. Yeah. But without the amen, yeah. There's nothing to propel that petition mm. to God. Mm. And if we look at it in the Bible, this also started in Deuteronomy when King David you know, was dedicating the Ark of God, the temple. And that wonderful prayer that King David offered and that passage concluded that, and all the people said, Amen. Yeah. If we look at all the letters of Paul the Apostle, every letter ends with the word, the word Amen. Yeah. That shows us the value, yeah. the spiritual significance yeah. of Amen yeah. in our communication with God. Let it be so, absolutely. Let it be actually. So this is how we affirm and we say, God, we have put this position in your care, but Mm. God is waiting. You've not signed it off. You've sent me a letter, but that letter has not been signed off. Our signature is the Amen. So prayer without Amen 
is like a petition without signature. Fantastic. I love it. Love it. <laughs> Dr. Benson, you have been a wonderful guest. You're a dear friend and part of the church. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Um, you have a wonderful grace and wisdom about you. And um, it's we're really blessed to have you with you and your family. And um, but what I mean, you work in some of the the most difficult places in the human mind and heart and you have done for your career and what our listeners may not know is you're probably one of the happiest people I know who's always smiling and you've got a gorgeous laughter <laughs> so just thank you so much Benson for being part of the church and for your friendship and uh, bless you for what you've given us today. Thank you. It's been it's been a real pleasure. I couldn't have done it on my own. It's all been a team effort, my family, mm. and the willingness of the congregation to make us feel part of that environment. So sure. it is the grace of God, and for that, I continue to give my appreciation and gratitude to God, mm. the wonderful people that mm. we meet in the church and that's one of the things we are missing very dearly mm. with this lockdown you know so for yeah. this i thank god and thank you very much for giving me the opportunity for giving me this platform mm. to be able to express my faith and right. talk a bit more about my professional and personal life thank you so much thank you, thank you for having yes. me. Yeah. bye bye